This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth planners and investment managers who offer unwavering support in challenging times. Visit CanDoWealth.com for more information. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Oscar Edmondson and I'm joined today by James Heal and Michael Simmons, the Spectator's data editor. So today was meant to be one of the blockbuster days in the COVID inquiry with Boris Johnson giving evidence for the first time. And here's a little bit of what he had to say in his opening statement. Could I say, by your leave, uh, that I understand the feelings of of these victims and their families, and I am deeply sorry for the pain and the loss and the suffering of those victims and, and their families. And grateful though I am to the hundreds of thousands of healthcare workers uh, and many other public servants and people in all walks of life who helped to protect our country throughout a dreadful pandemic, I do hope that this inquiry will help to get the answers to the very difficult questions that uh, those victims and those families are, are rightly asking. So, James, can you take us through how it went for Boris Johnson today? Yeah, so this was the first of two days of Boris Johnson's expected evidence session. And I think that it wasn't a huge surprise that the line of questioning taken by Hugo Keith. Obviously, there's been, you know, building up to this from the weeks and weeks we've had before, where a lot of people effectively in government, be that political aides or scientists or Matt Hancock, basically saying that we had a departmental brief, we had a specific role. It's up to the Prime Minister to decide how to adjudicate. And you know, there's also, I think in fairness, Baroness Hallett began today by talking about the fact that there's been a lot of pre-briefing about uh, what Boris Johnson was or wasn't going to say. I think at the end of today, I mean, partly it's been overshadowed by other events in politics, but equally, I don't think it wasn't, a, there wasn't a kind of... I remember during watching the Privileges Committee, there was several moments where Boris Johnson kind of lost his temper and was seen as defining moments or lines of questioning, etc. I don't think there was anything like that today. And really, it was very much Boris Johnson trying to paint a picture, I think, of Whitehall being completely unprepared in March 2020. I think in terms of the, the kind of critics of Boris Johnson, what they'll pick up from this, there wasn't, I think, perhaps an appreciation until it was too late about... Uh, what advice the scientists were giving the government and maybe there wasn't enough being on top of the detail for that. I, I, and I think that um, he himself admitted that he should have twigged about the pandemic by February and you know, there were criticisms he tried to brush off about not chairing COVID meetings, etc. And I think, you know, Boris Johnson was able to admit some sort of faults, you know, talking about some of the more salacious elements about some of those abusive WhatsApp messages, etc., he said today, you know, there should have been more women in number 10 under him. So I think that it was a more perhaps sober, less bombastic Boris Johnson they might be used to. We'll wait to see tomorrow. But I think that if you were looking for a kind of knockout blow today, it wasn't really provided. And given all the kind of pre-reefing, etc., I think it went reasonably well for him today. Michael, what was your opinion of Boris Johnson's sort of performance, if we can say that today? Yeah, so... Like like James said, I I think it, it you know it went relatively well. Boris was always going to have it you know tough. There was all the the protesters out there, and he's got you know difficult questions to answer, and rightly so. But I think 
today was a bit of a turning point um, in the perception of the inquiry. We've spoken before on this podcast um, and indeed in the leader for this week's magazine that's out tomorrow about how a lot of the inquiry and the questioning from the lead counsel, Hugo Keith, um, has been focusing on the sort of, as James mentioned, the salacious gossip, the rude words in WhatsApps. And we got a glimpse uh, in this week's Sunday Times about why Hugo Keith was doing that. And he, he, a friend or someone that knew him from the legal profession suggested that he basically sees his job as keeping the, the COVID inquiry in the news. So he's looking for a sort of a gotcha moment every day. And he tried that kind of early on um, with Boris, uh, saying that... Um, saying that uh, Britain had some of the worst excess deaths in Europe. And Boris is a, a more prepared witness than many. You know, he's, he's had his lawyers briefing him for months on, on today. And Boris rightly pointed out that actually, if you look at not just Europe, but across the world, Britain's excess deaths cumulatively are actually sort of middle of the pack. And there was a bit of to and fro between Boris and Hugo Keith. And eventually, Hugh Keith kind of correct himself a bit and said, well, he, he just meant, oh, we were the one of the worst in Western Europe, which is sort of literally true. But that does put you middle of the pack uh, in the world. And I think the, the thing that I find a bit depressing is that was just a point that, uh, you know, Hugh Keith wanted to say, we've had these terrible amount of deaths, Boris, you should apologise, which, which he did in his opening. But... When Boris, you know, comes back with, well, actually, we were, you know, lower down the table, middle of the middle of the ra- the ranks. There should be this, you know, questioning of the inquiry about, well, how are we actually doing in this table? How do we compare to other countries? Uh, we've got uh, the the lead graph on the Spectator's data at the moment shows Sweden with the lowest cumulative excess deaths. Does the inquiry, you know, want to question why that is? It's just something it's it's not in uh, not interested in. Um, we've spoken on this podcast about perhaps some sort of hidden agendas that are going on throughout this inquiry one of which that I think you've suggested as well on Coffeehouse Michael is that, that this idea that we should have we, that we locked down too late did we hear anything more about that from Boris Johnson yeah so that to my viewing is certainly a key theme of the inquiry it looks like um Hugh Keith specifically is, is pushing towards this idea that we locked down too late and playing into um Matt Hancock's evidence last week that uh, oh it was if we had locked down three weeks earlier you would have saved 90 90% of deaths and then um, Boris, actually, to me anyway, surprisingly, because we I'd always been under the impression that Boris was more of the, oh, reluctant uh, liberty defender and didn't want to lock down until it was absolutely necessary. But Boris said that he was actually more strong about the first lockdown than uh, other members of his cabinet. And I think he makes this interesting point as well about that the early advice was not to lock down. That was the consensus of Sage early on. Chris Whitty was constantly worrying about the the potential effects, as rightly he should be. And what's kind of staggering about this whole thing is the way the inquiry seems to work is, uh, you know, one witness will say, oh, well, I said we should have locked down weeks ago and we never did. And then that will be put to the next witness as if it's evidence. But it, we can actually seal this. It's in the early sage minutes that anyone can find on the government website. It shows that there was reluctance and then that suddenly changed to a pro-lockdown view when they saw what was happening in Italy, when they saw what's happening in China, and when graphs began to be used in a certain way within number 10. So I think Boris has probably done quite well to you know, dispel this idea that it was him stopping the first lockdown, and if it had been a different man, we would have locked down straight away. Yeah, I agree on that point. I think it gives a good illustration into kind of Boris Johnson's style of leadership and how he views that style of leadership. I think one interesting exchange this afternoon was his visible agitation 
when it, it was discussed whether he should have you know, agreed a course of action before talking to Rishi Sunak, who was then the Chancellor, about the risk to the bond markets and the government's ability to raise cash. And Johnson replied that I had to go through the arguments, which sort of suggests almost like a sort of philosophical argument or a sort of chairman, etc. So rather than I think someone who liked, you know, a more kind of executive role and saying, do this, do that, a kind of hands on, I think it shows really how, you know, Boris Johnson was happy to kind of let arguments play out. Now, I don't think really that many minds are being changed today i think it's noticeable being in westminster how little that's kind of featuring i, I don't think boris johnson uh we're getting particularly much in the way of of, of revelations here but i do think it, it just kind of it, it, it's going to offer i think his way of doing things and he will you know have to be able to say look i was elected by the public just four months previously to all of this and i was doing the best i could with the advisors and so i kind of think everyone will point fingers at each other Currently, I don't think there's been a kind of moment of a, a smoking gun or any such. I mean, the key thing that has been today, I think, has been in terms of emotional impact, the bereaved families and how they've taken some of the language. So, for instance, there was one memo shown today uh, where Boris Johnson, and excuse my language for this, uh, wrote um, on uh, long COVID bollocks in the margin and, quote, this is Gulf War syndrome stuff. Obviously, the bereaved families haven't taken that too well. But I think that, you know, with him, he's going to he, he's discussed today how this was an example of trying to just cope with the bad times, etc., under pressure. And so, as I say, I don't think, you know, if you like Boris Johnson before this, I'm sure you will as a result of it and vice versa. Um, I, so that's, I think, some of the criticisms we've been talking about is, you know, what are we learning that's new about this and what's going to be, in terms of institutions, changing the next pandemic? Because Boris Johnson won't be there during the next pandemic. But his point, and I think there is a lot of merit in what Boris Johnson said today about Whitehall being prepared is a completely valid one. And the question about, for instance, why were we relying on the 2011 plan for pandemics? Why was nothing done in the near decade since? And just picking up on what James said there, I think this is, you know, something the inquiry is just not going to answer because it does not look at the fundamental things that matter, which is do do lockdowns work? Does closing schools cause too many harms? And these are the questions that we really need to answer before the next pandemic comes. And uh, James, you alluded in the uh, in your first response on this podcast that uh, today's COVID inquiry proceedings have been overshadowed by other stories in <laughs> politics. Can you take us through those? Yes. So this morning, uh, Sula Braverman was granted the chance to make a personal statement, slightly different from a resignation statement, personal statement to the House of Commons, a bit belated after being fired from the Home Office. And then, of course, we had Prime Minister's questions. Then we had Sula Braverman's statement around two o'clock. And now when we're recording this, for in the afternoon, we've just learned that Rishi Sunak will tonight be addressing the 922 committee. And I think what's really telling is that there's a lot of sort of excitement and quite, you know, use that commentary at word, febrile atmosphere in Westminster, whereby you see the battle lines have been drawn. You saw this very much in evidence today in the chamber where you had sitting around Suella Braverman, the sort of great bastions of the, the Tory right. You had uh, representing the ERG, Chairman Marc Francois, representing Common Sense Group was John Hayes. And representing the New Conservatives were Danny Kruger and Miriam Cates, both in the chamber. So all those three groups, which they all lead, were meeting last night, discussing next steps, etc. And then others you saw, Tory MPs, were not part of that, sort of listening to Sarah Braverman's speech, sort of shaking heads, etc. So I think that was a very sort of visual demonstration of the tensions that are playing out. We don't know yet when, I think the big event of this week is still going to be when the legislation is published, or what that means for kind of responding to the criticisms of the Rwanda scheme and trying to make that stand up to avoid legal challenge. But uh, rest assured, we will bring you every twist and turn as they happen on the Coffee House blog. 
Uh, well, thank you very much, James. Thank you, Michael. And thank you for listening.